Lectionary Lab Live is recorded live in Gainesville, Florida and Brasstown, North Carolina. Welcome, everybody, to the Lectionary Lab Live. I'm John Fairless. I'm here with my Bubba, Delmer Chilton. Say hey, Bubba. Hey, Bubba. Hey, man. Good to hear you today. Always a pleasure to hear your resonant tones come online. And we are going to talk some text today. Think about preaching for the third Sunday after Pentecost. These are the texts for June the 18th, 2020. 23. So we're all about the texts on this show and, and thinking about that will be father's day, whatever y'all got to do, uh, in terms of that (laughs) stuff, uh, we're not giving you any recommendations on that. Uh, but Hey, to all of you that are dads, uh, we love you. Uh, so let's move on, Bubba. What do you got? And thinking about, uh, these texts today. Well, if you'd need to, in Genesis, Abraham finally becomes a father. So <laughs> that's from there that's from Delmer's Shoehorn series, you all. Shoehorn uh, series. We're, we're thinking about publishing a new book uh, of <laughs> Shoehorn Sermons for Special sure. Occasions. Shoehorn sermons for special occasions. <laughs> How to make the lectionary fit on national oh. and secular holidays. Yep, yeah. All right, here we go. Uh, we got two sets of Hebrew scripture text. I'm going to talk about both of them mm-hmm. uh, a bit. And then we have Romans and Matthews. And, yeah. you know, last week you joked a little bit about my $3,000 sermon. This text this week is the text. There you go. Upon which I wrote my $3,000 sermon. Uh, <laughs> I was at the Lutheran Seminary after five years as a parish pastor in North Carolina. So they, the seminary and the, that sent people out to preach and the bishop's office knew I'd go at a drop of a hat. Yeah. And I, I wrote a paper on Romans five for a class I took in Romans and I, it was a sermon. You had to write a sermon for this class. And I just kept taking it every Sunday and say, the second lesson has been changed to Romans 5, 1 through 8. And then preach the <laughs> there you go. In 30 different Lutheran churches in the South Carolina Synod. So uh, this the $100 <laughs> a pop. There you go. Uh, and here we go. That was 40 some years ago. I do not think most, uh, some of what I said in that sermon, I would say the same way. Mm-hmm. Before, so there here we go. go. So uh, let's do Genesis and uh, Text that go with it, and then we'll do Exodus and its psalm, and then we'll do Romans and Matthew. So Genesis 18, 1 through 15, and an edition of 21, 1 through 7. This is uh, the themes for all of these texts today. I have a standard kind of five-minute wedding homily I do, less than five minutes most of the time, and it's called Promises Made, Promises Kept. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, a couple makes promises to each other. The people here today, by being here, promise to stand behind you. And God promises to be in your marriage. You know, that kind of thing. And, they, and you always hear, oh, such a nice service, Pastor. That such a so nice, nice service. Yeah. So um, this, today, all the lessons in one way or another are promises made and promises kept. Mm-hmm. In particular, the Hebrew scripture text circle around promises made and promises kept. I think the New Testament lessons, the Christian scriptures, it might be a little bit more shoehorning, but the covenant, God's promises are in the background and and are, are ways in which God has um, kept God's promise to make Abram a blessing to the nations. And Romans explores that and Matthew explores that. So... Um, that's the basic theme that's sort of running through my mind today. Uh, Genesis is a fulfillment of what I always called the baby promise. Mm-hmm. There were several promises that uh, God made to Abram and Sarah, and the first one had to do with, uh, I want to make you uh, a great nation, and to do that, um, your barren wife is going to have to get pregnant in her old age, in your old age. 
And a lot of the cycle of the story of Abram and Sarah is their struggle to hold on to that promise. So they've been through a lot by Genesis 18. And and you have this text for today, and you have basically three scenes. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first scene, you've got this interesting exploration of uh, ancient Near Eastern hospitality. I have heard... And none of you would do this, uh, trying to apply the Trinity to, <clears throat> to the set. No, none do of our listeners would try to shoot none of our listeners. that much, but would you? In case yeah. you get tempted, don't do that. Yeah. Uh, this is, you know, a, a theophany, uh, a presence of God. It is not seen as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's Three men, it turns out to be the Lord and two attendants. And in this period, you'll see various ways in which God has various attendants or angels or Yahweh has people in the heavenly court. This is a visit to earth, as it were. What's interesting is it starts with, we know Yahweh is there, Abram doesn't. Uh, One of the important things for the hospitality, these are just three people. There's no indication that they were special people, that Mm -hmm. anything other than it's a hot day, he's sitting by the tent in the heat of the day, and he sees these people come, and he immediately is generously hospitable. Uh, He gives them some water both to drink and to clean their feet and offers them the shade of the tree. You know, you can sit here and comfort and he tells his wife back in the tent you know get some bread he says i'm going to provide you with some uh, some bread a little water and i'll bring you a little bread but he doesn't just bring bread he kills a <laughs> calf you know great hospitality yeah. and, and throughout this i was to say and just a note and this came out of my discussion with my bible study group through genesis as you would expect, Abram says, let me bring you this stuff. Of course, he immediately goes as the servant who cooks the calf, (laughs) and it's his wife who goes to the kitchen, and maybe she got a servant to do it, you know. So, yeah, there's that. Uh, You know, one of the things I've been reading lately is an Old Testament, some books about, you know, how to read the Old Testament. One of the things is to say ancient peoples were much more comfortable with a hierarchical Mm -hmm. ordering of the universe than we are. Indeed, We think of individual freedom and individual ability to do anything we want to do as a key core value. And in most of human history, most people's, it was about finding the right order that everything will flow and yeah. work. So, And that was part of it. They're more comfortable with that order. But nonetheless. Absolutely. So you get down and you get down to six and... Uh, I mean, through through verse eight, and he's getting the calf, and they got the curds, and and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. That's another thing. He didn't sit down to eat with them. He stood, he was the host. He was waiting. He was like the the waiter. Yeah. You know, with these folks, and he didn't know they were anybody special. The tone there changes, and in the next little bit, uh, the rest of chapter eight eighteen is really Sarah talking to Yahweh. And it's interesting how things change. In 9, it says, they said to him, mm-hmm. where is your wife, Sarah? Indication they knew who they were talking to. Okay. They weren't just strangers. And he says, they're in the tent. Then 10, it ups the ante. One said, I will surely return in due season and your wife will have son." The light's starting to go off for Abram. (laughs) And then you have this thing where Sarah's listening in the tent and she laughs. Laughs not with pleasure, not necessarily with derision, but laughs like, Like that's going to happen. Like that's going to happen. Really? Sure. Well, You know, mm-hmm. that kind of way. Yeah. This text partly turns on shifting what the laugh. Wonderful play on that word for laugh and laughter yeah. throughout this. Yeah. So from this point on, this turns on laughter. She says she laughed. <laughs> and then it goes up. So it went from they to one to I to 
the Lord. This may be a time because of the way English Bibles do to explain to people that when it's Lord in all caps, yeah. it's the divine name. There's your covenant and when it's name. Lo- yep. Capital L and then O R D, it's curious or master. It's two different things. And so there's the there's Yahweh. So finally totally revealed. Why did Sarah laugh? And um is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Hmm. So Yahweh is talking to Abram, Abraham, and she's still back in the tent. I'll come and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah, I just see her poking her head out of the tent at this point. Kind of like laugh-in back in the old days. Uh, <laughs> kind of like laugh-in uh, yeah. back in the old days. They'd pop out from the thing and yeah. go back. Yeah, I didn't laugh because she was afraid. And he, being the Lord, said, oh, yes, you did laugh. Yeah, did. So that's scene one is Abram, Abraham and the, and the three. Scene two is Sarah and dialogue with Yahweh and the laughter thing. And then we have this interlude. I'm always fascinated when they skip. And, and what they skipped um, to get over to 21 and the fulfillment, and I know why they did it, the fulfillment. <laughs> but what they skipped is the whole Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his daughters mm. and uh, another episode of Abraham saying she's my sister with Abimelech. <laughs> so in the midst of all this lovely promise, you got all this mess, mm. mostly ancient sexuality mess up mm-hmm. mess. Mm-hmm. And then we come back to the parenting. I just find that a fascinating thing to say. The Bible is full of interesting well, humanity. It, it is. And you don't want to get sidetracked on this, but maybe no. it's a time to say much like we do at Christmas in this tale. And it's a Sunday school story. It's, you know, we uh, we pretty much homogenize it. And we pretty much boiled down to the Lord came and, and said this and Sarah laughed. And then sure enough, uh, God blessed her. And then she got the baby and, and she said, oh, now I'm laughing for joy. You know, And that's the story. And we don't think about all that stuff, all of that family. It's a mess. It's a mess. And yet God is still working. And that's what this chapter 21 comes back. God working through and in spite of, and in, perhaps in the midst of, the family mess. So, yeah. Yeah, the trouble with sanitizing of stories is that we as Christians sit there and think we don't measure up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we keep sanitizing and making it inspirational and look at these people and we should be like them, then we can have a certain level of great despair. <laughs> About and we get hypocrisy, a little bit of hypocrisy, like about well, we act like we're better than we are because we think as Christians we're supposed to, hmm. as opposed to saying, "Oh, this is the human condition, and God loves us anyway." Moving on from that, so they skip all of that. So you get scene one, scene two, and then scene three is the fulfillment of the promise, uh, and. Um, the Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. I love the way that focuses on Sarah having the baby, and she conceived and bore Abraham a son in, in his old age. And Abram gave them the son the name Isaac, which means laughter. And he circumcised him. In eight days, this is kind of one of those foundational stories that people you know, you tell the story over the years as, as Hebrew people when you circumcise a child. The covenant uh, is eight. continuing, yeah. Covenant's continuing, as God had commanded him. And it throws in, he was 100 years old. And Sarah says, and this is, God has brought laughter to me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. So what has started off as... A laugh of derision. God can't possibly do this. And God says, 
Is it not anything too wonderful for God? Mm-hmm. The shift. And then Sarah recognizes this was a joyful, I've been, my laughter has been transformed. Yeah. And the world will laugh, that is, be full of joy and celebrate with me. Yeah. This is the Sarah version of the fulfillment of the covenant. You've got God that said to Abram, you know, uh, whatever, chapters ago, back in chapter 12, I'm going to bless you, make your your name great, you're going to have this family, and through you, all nations will be blessed. We've got Sarah reducing that in that verse 6 to a wonderful piece around motherhood, around the, the joy of this birth. Okay, Now God has brought laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. Now it's expanding out. So, yep. you know, we don't often get a whole lot of feature on the females in the story, right. but there's a moment to see the covenant fulfillment from Sarah's perspective uh, through right. this birth. Yeah. Great story. And so Psalm 116 is a psalm of thanksgiving. It's an individual psalm. And and which one, um, there's a dialogue in verse 1. The worshiper is witnessing to the crowd. And uh, it skips ahead because from 3 to 11, it talks about the personal struggle and near death. So he comes out of that, and then he has this thanksgiving moment. And uh, 16 uh, through, let's see, yeah, 13 through 15, he is talking to Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And what he's saying is, I will now fulfill the vows I made while I was struggling with right. this illness. And he's saying it to God. And then in 17 uh, through 18 and 19, then he talks to the crowd and says, I'm going to do this fulfilling my vows. Now, how does this connect mm-hmm. with the text, the story we just read? It has to do with Abraham fulfilling the vows of naming him Isaac, circumcising him as he promised. It's that connection yeah. is that Isaac, Abraham and Sarah fulfilled the vows as God rescued them, did mm-hmm. what God promise they offered thanksgiving by obeying the promise they made the fulfillment of covenant on both sides that's right which moves us you know quite into the sec- exodus the set other lesson the one that's tied in uh with the uh the complementary text um exodus 19 what's interesting here exodus 19 um two through eight a is the beginning of the single longest unit in the Hebrew scriptures. Mm -hmm. You get to Sinai and you don't leave until numbers. Yeah. All the rest of Exodus, it's all of Leviticus in the first 10 chapters of numbers. It's a very long thing. And it is the, the covenant renewal Mm -hmm. there. And that's a, episode that shows covenant renewal and then the part we don't read the rest of this next couple of books you know into uh, is the implications mm-hmm. the uh and it's what we sometimes call law but i think better torah the teaching yeah what is this is god's people this is the run-up to the core of torah which is a lot more yeah. than just the words written down or even just yeah. the words God has spoken. It involves back to this two-way functioning of the covenant. God speaks and gives, and then those who respond uh, receive and act. It, it it flows both ways. That's what's at the heart of Torah. And as you say, this is really the run-up to the big core of that. Uh, There's a lot more that goes with it, but... Yeah, that's the, the best one. One analogy I can make about about what what this whole bit about is a very is a an accumulation of things that says this is what it means to be us, to be this family, this extended family. Mm-hmm. And um, my father, in particular, and my mother as well, articulated in their own country farm folk way what it meant to be children. 
And the worst thing we could do as the five Chilton children was to violate their sense of who we were supposed, what kind of yeah. people we were. Yeah. It wasn't law. It wasn't, you know, that they'd quit loving us or throw us out. It was disappointment. Yeah. And it was a teaching because what they expected was what they wanted us to be a certain kind of people. They modeled it mm-hmm. and they articulated it. In this segment, what we've called law and kind of with that language, we bring with it a kind of judicial system. We have violated, I think, what Torah actually is about, which is about trying to articulate in a time and place, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be people who follow Yahweh? And the difficulty for us is translating not only the Hebrew language, but the Hebrew culture of 3,000 years ago. And what does it mean for us to be people who follow Yahweh mm. in the 21st century? We can't do it by the, quote, letter of the law. Right. We have to do that by the spirit, as Jesus articulated, of what it means to be this kind of people, the kind of people who are God's people. Yeah. That's the, what the issue is. Now, in this particular text, there's a couple of interesting things here. And I want to, if I were preaching, I would lift, I think I, on this text, I think I would lift this up. You got this up and down the mountain thing <laughs> for Moses. And he goes up the mountain to talk to God. And he comes down the mountain to talk to the people. Then he goes back up the mountain to talk to God. And he's the mediator. It shows him as a mediator. Yeah. That's a priestly role. There's a little bit of prophet, proclaimer, but mostly it's a priestly role, a mediator kind of person. I remember when I first, first learned uh, running Lutheran, doing Lutheran worship, one of the things in those days when the altar was against the wall (laughs) is turned Mm -hmm. to the people to speak for God to the people. You turn to the altar to speak for the people to... uh, to yeah. God for the people, yeah. you know, you, to God for the people. So it was a simple physical kind of thing to remind yourself of what you were doing. And that's the, the basic key to leading worship in that kind of community. Well, this is based on what he's doing here. Now, here's an interesting thing for me. Part of the call, you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. That helps define what it is that God is calling the Israelites to do. He is calling them to be mediators between Yahweh and the rest of God's beloved people. Mm-hmm. The Israelites were called to teach and preach, proclaim what it meant, who God was, the one God, as they said. Uh, there's an exclusivity to that claim. Sometimes they forgot what it, you know, what it meant that it's not that we're special mm-hmm. and better. Yeah, that we roll. Uh, the clergy can get that same problem. You Absolutely. Know, we forget that. Absolutely. We forget that our our agency is on behalf of God's outreach to God's yeah. beloved people. And as the church, we are a priesthood of believers. In Protestantism, especially, we say this. Mm-hmm. And that means we have to think about that in a Moses kind of role. we not condemning the world, but that the world through him might be saved, to paraphrase a little bit about Christ the Messiah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're a priestly people. And I, 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 would, I, I think that's a rich possibilities for articulating what it means to be a, commun- a religious community. Yeah. And, and the priestly role that comes with it. As you said and alluded to, it's a temptation, one that we have and continue to sometimes fall into, to diminish this vision of the law, to diminish this vision of Torah, to a list of rules and regulations, and try to measure, you know, how we're doing, you know, by that and so on. It is so much more. And here we begin to get an insight into Torah, into the law, as a way of envisioning, or I'm even going to reach for the word imagining. I've been reading some Walter Brueggemann this week for Psalms work I'm doing, and, and imagining 
the world the way it can be. This is the, the world that God envisions. And so Torah does that. I think it's why later Paul in Romans and other places wants to talk about um, the law as a, a teacher, a guide, a schoolmaster. Okay, it is a pedagogue. It is teaching us. It is leading us. And so it's so much more than this yep. list of rules. And it neither should we try to strict down on it, make it a stricture on people, nor should we discard it. As I said, this is another side that I've heard a lot. Yeah, well, that's the Old Testament. That's law. I just want the New Testament and grace. No, 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 no. This is this is God working the same thing the whole way. So yeah. there you go. All the way through. And a reminder then of what our role is, that um, we're not in this for us. Uh, the question of, I didn't get anything out of it. Well, it, <laughs> who said it was about you? Uh, so uh, Psalm 100 is one of the few Psalms that tells you what it is in the text. I mean, the superscription says a Psalm of thanks offering. Mm -hmm. So what this, what this is about is a communal Psalm and it's a Psalm in which you come and, you know, you kill a big, you kill the fatted calf on the altar and make a sacrifice and offering. And this is a Psalm that goes with it. And it is a Psalm that goes with a communal feast day barbecue. This is, <laughs> All day preaching and dinner on the ground. So, uh, the Leviticus um, seven fifteen says, "All that meat's got to be eaten on the day it's killed." Can't waste and it. It's a party time, you know. Uh, I doubt very seriously it'd be uh, pig pigging as an appropriate analogy, but uh, it's the nearest party <laughs> I've ever had to. Well, it's translating to to your culture, you know, to our to culture. To my culture. We bring and, it over. Uh, they, yeah. <laughs> cook that pig out there and eat it all day and have some bluegrass music going. In my part of the world, it'd be sweet tea and the, any alcohol being drunk would be done out behind the barn. <laughs> uh, <laughs> these days, it's different. Uh, mm -hmm. The alcohol's moved on to the front porch, but in yeah. one of my growing up days, <laughs> but it was a party. It was a celebration. This is a communal event. And one of the things to know is all the imperatives in here are plural. Mm -hmm. These are all y'all. Mm -hmm. All of us um, in here. All y'all worship the Lord with gladness. All y'all come into the presence with singing. It is he who bade us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of the path. All of y'all enter his gates with thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. All y'all give thanks to him. That's the implication. It is a gigantic celebration of the covenant. This is why it goes with the text we have here in which Moses comes down and speaks for God to the people and says, this is what God asked, and he'll make you your people. And said, all that he asked, we will do. And the implication is they give an offering and sacrifice and all y'all, and they celebrate the covenant. Mm -hmm. So... There we go. That I, the Hebrew scripture texts are all about various ways of the covenant of God with people who may not deserve it. You know, this is one of the issues. And I'm gonna. This is my segue to Romans. Who deserves the grace of God? And even Hebrew scriptures and that that left out part. Um, you know, we see Abraham bargaining with God, but mm -hmm. we also see Lot and. Lot's wife turned into salt, and we see, you know, yep. Abraham turning from bargaining directly with God for other people to very frighteningly being very frightened and being afraid to tell some minor king that this is his wife. So, mm -hmm. oh, she's just my sister. Yeah, you can have her in your harem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Twice he does this. Maybe it's two versions of the same story, some commentators believe, with, but nonetheless... It's a character flaw, shall mm -hmm. we say. One that he passes on to his descendants. Yes, yeah. and but grace still comes. Covenant still comes. The story of covenant is God always fulfills God's covenant. And God's people struggle with their side of the bargain. 
but yet God never cancels the contract. Steadfast love. Yep. So Romans, I could explore this all day long. There's so many wonderful words, so many theological words. You can just pick a sentence and spend 15 Mm -hmm. minutes sermon on it. So here's what today I'm thinking about. I think the, the, the key struggle here for, in this text is all the way over on verse 7. For, in 6 and 7. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In dream, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love. The death of Christ for us, the death of the Messiah, is a theological puzzle. It doesn't make sense to either the Jews or the Gentiles. For the Jews who had been waiting for a Messiah, not all had been, but they had a vision of that Messiah. And and not only was it not a carpenter's son from a small village in rural backwater like Nazareth, but it was definitely not somebody who got himself killed by the powers he was supposed to be overcoming. How? What does that do and how does that work? And, of course, for the Gentiles in that, that culture, you know, there were multiple levels going on about what what was a problem. But one of those problems was, well, if he did die, why, why die for hmm. those people? Those know, people. <laughs> uh, when, I, when I was a young past Lutheran pastor near Salisbury in Rowan County, North Carolina, where there are more Lutherans than people, it's where the Germans settled, and they're about huge numbers of Lutheran churches. And out on I-85 around Salisbury, there's a big flea market. You've seen these things, you know, big, mm-hmm. every Saturday, big, huge thing. It was like the biggest yard sale you've ever seen in some ways with booths and labels and had food booths and people rented the booths yep. and put their stuff on display. And it was a good plea that there was no admission charge. So it was a good way to pass an afternoon, particularly with two small children you put one in the stroller and well you feed them and go walking and we'd do this occasionally one saturday we were out there walking i ran into a colleague who was an interesting guy i liked him pretty well he had been a professor of something medieval history art something Mm -hmm. at a small college when he felt the call went to seminary entered the ministry and he had a small church there in rowan county he was an interesting guy, and I ran, last person I would have expected to see at the flea market. <laughs> and it turns out his wife was looking for replacement dishes for a set of his, their grandmother had given them. They were thought maybe they'd find something there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We were standing at kind of a intersection where you could look down various ways and see all these collection of people and. Uh, you know, the kind of people you see on a Saturday afternoon. In a place <laughs> Out like at the flea market, yeah. And he looked around and he says, you know, I've come, gotten accustomed to the idea that Jesus died for me. But for the life of me, I can't believe he died for these people. <laughs> now, he was painfully orthodox guy. He was being snarky and snide, but he also, you know, and he, was, a, but he, there was an emotional truth there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is what Paul is struggling with. Paul believed, had believed he was one of the righteous and good people. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to dive in. There's a difference between righteous and good, and we can play with that. But he yeah. believed he was one of those people until he had his Damascus Road experience. And he was confronted with the idea, no, you're not. Why are you persecuting me? Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. lost his physical sight in order to gain a spiritual sight. Yeah. As he And he came out of that with a different vision of who he was and who everybody else was. Yeah. And this is what he struggled with. That is his story throughout and i believe this text he is struggling again with that story Mm -hmm. 
why would Jesus do that? Yeah. Why would he die for these people? This One is, through five follow, actually follows on that dynamic yeah. of saying, oh, he died for everybody, so we are yeah. justified. This so, is Paul musing over the fact that ain't this a theological oddity? Yeah. Uh, you know, with, you know, and, and he's going to lead us wonderfully through this yeah. whole argument uh, in Romans, which is why putting this, those of you that may be working this Romans sort of series uh, throughout the yeah. summer, you've got good work going on. And all I can say, Bob, about the, the um, uh, flea market story, uh, yeah. I get it. I've been there. And so Saturday afternoon at the flea market was kind of the pre-Walmart. Uh, gathering, yeah. you know, we say now just go to hang yeah. out at Walmart. In modern days, you see the pictures of people what people wear 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 to Walmart. Well, yeah. just yeah. shift it if you have to in your mind. That's it. So, Bubba, I guess we better get on to the gospel because there's a lot of good stuff in this one today, too. I definitely am ready to do that. <laughs> Been a lot to talk about, but I want to focus on. We often talk about the complementary track from the he, two he, the lessons, one semi-continuous, the other complementary. It's not that it the old Hebrew scripture lesson says nice things about the gospel. It doesn't yeah. compliment. It goes right, with right. complimentary. <laughs> yeah. And the complimentariness today has to do with when Exodus says that you shall be a priestly kingdom. Hmm. And that what I and a holy nation. And what I talked about in terms of what it means for the Jewish people to be a nation of priests and what it means for the church to be a priesthood of believers. Well, this goes along with what's going on in the gospel. And listen carefully to how this flows out. You begin with a summary statement. You find these in various places in the gospels where it's kind of like, take a breath and say, okay, let me remind you what we're doing here. Jesus is going about from the cities and towns, and this is what he's doing. He's teaching in their synagogues, teaching and preaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and he's curing every disease and every sickness. So then it shifts to sin, and this is what happened when he did that. Um, one question is answered, why did he do this? Motivation's important thing. Was he trying to work up a crowd? Was he trying to become famous? Was he trying to get a hearing for his lesson? Why did he do all this curing and healing and or teaching and preaching? And it's right. because he had compassion. This is a definition of who God is that was at odds with a lot of ancient civilizations' understanding of divinity. The gods were separate from us. The gods messed with us. Uh, you know, um, they did what they wanted to do for their own reasons. And yeah. we were just... We got, play things you, for the gods, yeah. Play things, and you tried to stay on the good side of the gods so they wouldn't mess with you. And here we have a one whom this gospel is proclaiming to be the son of God, God on earth, as it were. The, and it says, had compassion, really cared. Right. That's a different notion about who God is, at least at that time and that place. So he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is, again, a, a reflection back on the Hebrew scriptures in which uh, the king, the leader of Israel, was considered to be a shepherd of the sheep. And in other places in the Gospels, we will find Jesus talking about the bad shepherds and the good shepherds. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the good shepherd, well, there's this land, that image coming up. So people are in trouble and needy. Here's an interesting thing. He basically says, I, can, I can't do this by myself. Right. That's the real interpretation of these uh, verses 37 and 38. The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, growing up in the evangelical subculture, uh, as you did, uh, we heard this many times in the appeal for money for for missionaries and, uh, Hmm. you know, for us to, everybody witness and all. And 
I guess that's all right. But what's really core here is that Jesus, you've got Jesus going around doing all this. And he right. had compassion. And he basically says, I need help. I can't get around to everybody. I can't get around to everybody. He basically, that's the simple thing where he says, therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest. Then after saying that, Jesus summoned, and here's an interesting thing. Notice this. Summoned the 12 disciples disciples, students. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease. And then in 10-2, these are the names of the 12 apostles. He graduated them. And there you go. This is their commissioning, ordination, graduation. Yeah. And he commissioned them. He graduated them and sent them. Apostles yeah. or sent ones. And he sent them out. And gave him the disciples authority, and then he made them apostles, and he sent them out. And then we have the list, which is pretty much the same as you find these lists in different orders. But it, it begins and ends pretty much the same. It starts with Simon. It always ends with Judas. Uh, you know, kind of like, yeah, well, Judas was one of them, but you know what happened with him? <laughs> and then he sent them out with instructions. And notice the instructions parallel verse 35. They are asked to go do what Jesus did. Mm -hmm. um, verse 7, go proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead. Sort of expands that language. Cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You go do what I've been doing because it's too much for me. A couple of, couple of things in here to think about. The most important thing uh, before I go on these two other things, is that's who we are. Right. We are students who, we are disciples who are sent. We are one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Some people focus down on the apostolic as being in apostolic succession. We have inherited all this. I focus on the apostle apostolic to say the church is still being sent. Right. I like we it. don't sit inside. We are a missional community. Mm -hmm. We are still being sent. Yeah. And this is a sentness story. Yeah. A couple of key things. Um, let, yeah, let me jump in because you know my, yeah. my brain. It'll, I'll right, forget. Sorry. I forget. Um, I, I love this connection to the Exodus passage. And yes, the sent. And yes, this passage sometimes gets overused in other ways. I think this is a fresh way to look at it. But there's another connection here in the ask the uh, ask the Lord of the harvest to yeah. send out laborers into the harvest. Oh, I need you to pray. And so, boy, I've been in prayer meetings and, oh, Lord, send, you know, the laborers to the harvest. We're really happy to pray. Yeah. But then the next <laughs> verse is like Jesus says, oh, well, God has answered your prayers. Yes. It's you. That's right. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I love that. Be careful transition. what you pray for. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, pray for pray that ask the Lord the harvest. Okay, Lord, send them. What? Me? Are you it's kidding you. me? <laughs> it's <laughs> us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. So here are two quick questions. One is the 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 puzzling thing that, that is inconsistent even for Matthew. Because in other places, he says, you know, particularly in the Great Commission in 28, he says, go to the whole world. But here he says, go only to the Israel only. Start at home. Um, one argument is that this is, uh, this is, first of all, Matthew has a very is writing to a very conservative Jewish Christian community. This may be an aspect of um, Jews first and then the Gentiles you know, an order kind of thing here. And uh, again, remember, this is um, an early um, kind of Jew early Jewish Christian community. This may be a little bit of a, well, Paul and those people are doing the Gentile thing. Our job here in Jerusalem is the Jewish community. I, I, it's an I unclear. And, and I don't think it's something you need to pay a lot of attention to homiletically. Uh, but if someone raises the issue, it's one of those you say, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. 
<laughs> what a great question. What do you the think? Scholars are un, the scholars are unclear. I love this ending. You receive without payment, give without payment. Uh, I'll tell you a little thing that happened Sunday. I was supplying uh, at the little church we go to regularly, a little St. Andrew Lutheran and Andrews, the priest. Pastor is on vacation. And my uh, I heard this at lunch afterwards with my family, my grandson, who's five. His mother gave him the money to put in the offering plate. He's looking at it, and he says, but why does the church need money? Yeah, <laughs> he's getting connected there. Practically. His, I heard that his, his dad said, well, they got a power bill just like anybody else. <laughs> Something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, just amused, and I said to him, that's a very good question. It is. Why does the church need money? Um, and what the implication here has to do is that it's not that you that the laborer shouldn't be, you know, the professional clergy shouldn't get paid, uh, and not in that regard. This was not a world that reflected that reality when they're talking about this of what we have come to with churches, and and but rather don't charge for the gospel. You know, it's not a it's not a bargain thing, and don't use it to get rich. Yeah. I could point a few. You know, we could all point a few fingers at the get rich. Uh, I think this is for for professional clergy, a text and a place where we need to look at it a little bit, mm-hmm. but not stand feeling terribly judged. Uh, most none of us are getting. Most of us aren't getting rich when they could have made a lot more money doing something else in this mm-hmm. culture. And, but most of us end up being pretty well fed. Pretty well fed, yes, yeah, we do. Yeah, we get fed yeah. enough. So the question is among, one of motivation: Why do we do this? And what he's getting at here, and with the the parenthetical text, you may or may not want to use. It is an issue of trusting God and not using what you've accumulated in an anxious mm-hmm. manner. Right. in order to provide for yourself, but to trust that God will be with you as you do this. Keep the message pure, in other mm-hmm. words. As you yeah. look, I'm not going to go in-depth at the rest of this, uh, the uh, 9 through 23, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that's just too long, too much. But it's but essentially will... the same thing, right? Yeah. Don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't trust God. Yeah. Well, and and don't manipulate the message in the interest of a bigger offering plate. Oh, darn! Don't don't uh, don't change the message because you're worried somebody might not want to give. Yeah. Don't change the message in the hopes that it will increase giving. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I think is a message to us. Our job is to fr- a free pulpit goes a lot of different ways and proclaim the gospel and care for the people. Mm-hmm. And I reckon I'm done. Pretty good stuff. Pretty good. Uh, last thing I'd say was I was thinking about this passage. You get down there to the end and you got this whole, uh, you know, you're going to be persecuted, flawed, beaten, dragged out, blah, 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 blah. And then this curious line, uh, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And is that what we have to do to be, quote, right with God, to be, to be no, it, it is a continued working out of this idea. God is with us. And yeah, you're going to, you may be in some uh, pretty unendurable situations or uncomfortable at the least, but yeah. God is there in the midst and salvation, not my ticket to heaven, not, you know, but. Uh, redemption, deliverance, helping us in the midst, all of those connotations of, of, of being saved, you're going to see it happen. Trust right. God. So, man, there is a lot of stuff today. This uh, uh, year, A, I think particularly during this season after Pentecost, is, is just filled with rich texts and doing six of them each week. We're doing our best, and I think you're bringing up some great stuff, Bubba. You preachers, think on it, study on it, pray on it. Uh, be careful what you pray for. Uh, 
Uh, yeah. But but find where you need to settle for your folks, and it's going to be good stuff. All right, Bob, I appreciate it. We'll be back next time. But I reckon for today, there's not much left for us to do other than to tell everybody bye. Everybody bye. Lectionary Lab Live is a Two Bubbles and a Bible production. Our opening theme is Next Steps, performed by Half.Cool. We go out today with Where I Belong. It's one of the themes from This Is Us, composed by Elise Davis and Siddhartha Kosla, performed by Hannah Zile. People so fearless in this world They make me feel like a scared little girl But things are gonna turn around I'm looking up now I'm gonna get out the door.